Chapter Twelve of the Return of Doctor Fu Manchu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elaine Tweddle. The Return of Doctor Fu Manchu by Sax Romer. Chapter Twelve. Dark Eyes Looked Into Mine. My adventure had done nothing to relieve the feelings of unreality which held me enthralled. Grasping the struggling bird firmly by the body, and having the long tail fluttering a yard or so behind me, I returned to where the taxi waited. "'Open the door,' I said to the man, who greeted me with such a stare of amazement that I laughed outright, though my mirth was but hollow. He jumped into the road and did as I directed. Making sure that both windows were closed, I thrust the peacock into the cab and shut the door upon it. "'For God's sake, sir,' began the driver." "'It has probably escaped from some collector's place on the riverside,' I explained, "'but one never knows. "'See that it does not escape again, and if at the end of an hour, as arranged, "'you do not hear from me, take it back with you to the river police station.' "'Right you are, sir,' said the man, remounting his seat. "'It's the first time I ever saw Peacock in Limehouse.' "'It was the first time I had seen one, and the incident struck me as being more than odd. "'It gave me an idea, and a new faint hope.' I returned to the head of the steps, at the foot of which I had met with this singular experience, and gazed up at the dark building beneath which they led. Three windows were visible, but they were broken and neglected. One immediately above the arch had been pasted up with brown paper, and this was now peeling off in the rain, a little stream of which trickled down from the detached corner to drop, drearily, upon the stone stairs beneath. Where were the detectives? I could only assume that they had directed their attention elsewhere, for had the place not been utterly deserted, surely I would have been challenged. In pursuit of my new idea, I again descended the steps. The persuasion, shortly to be verified, that I was close upon the secret hold of the Chinaman grew stronger, unaccountably. I had descended some eight steps, and was at the darkest part of the archway or tunnel, when confirmation of my theories came to me. A noose settled accurately upon my shoulders, was snatched tightly about my throat, and with a feeling of insupportable agony at the base of my skull, and a sudden supreme knowledge that I was being strangled, hanged, I lost consciousness. How long I remained unconscious I was unable to determine at the time, but I learned later that it was for no more than half an hour, at any rate, recovery was slow. The first sensation to return to me was a sort of repetition of the asphyxia. The blood seemed to be forcing itself into my eyes. I choked. I felt that my end was come. And raising my hands to my throat, I found it to be swollen and inflamed. Then the floor upon which I lay seemed to be rocking like the deck of a ship. I glided back again into a place of darkness and forgetfulness. My second awakening was heralded by a returning sense of smell for I became conscious of a faint, exquisite perfume. It brought me to my senses as nothing else could have done, and I sat upright with a hoarse cry. I could have distinguished that perfume amid a thousand others, could have marked it apart from the rest of a scent bazaar. For me it had one meaning, and one meaning only. Karamina. She was near to me, or had been near to me, and in the first moments of my awakening I groped about in the darkness, blindly seeking her. Then my swollen throat and throbbing head, together with my utter inability to move my neck even slightly, reminded me of the facts as they were. I knew in that bitter moment that Karamina was no longer my friend, but, for all her beauty and charm, was the most heartless, the most fiendish creature in the service of Dr. Fu Manchu. 
i groaned aloud in my despair and misery something stirred near to me in the room and set my nerves creeping with new apprehension i became fully alive to the possibilities of the darkness to my certain knowledge dr fu manchu at this time had been in england for fully three months which meant that by now he must be equipped with all the instruments of destruction animate and inanimate which dread experience had taught me to associate with him now as i crouched there in that dark apartment listening for a repetition of the sound i scarcely dared to conjecture what might have occasioned it but my imagination peopled the place with reptiles which writhed upon the floor with tarantulas and other deadly insects which crept upon the walls which might drop upon me from the ceiling at any moment then since nothing stirred about me i ventured to move turning my shoulders for i was unable to move my aching head and i looked in the direction from which a faint very faint light proceeded a regular tapping sound now began to attract my attention and having turned about i perceived that behind me was a broken window in places patched with brown paper the corner of one sheet of paper was detached and the rain trickled down upon it with a rhythmical sound in a flash i realized that i lay in the room immediately above the archway and listening intently i perceived above the other faint sounds of the night or thought that i perceived the hissing of the gas from the extinguished lamp-burner unsteadily i rose to my feet but found myself swaying like a drunken man i reached out for support stumbling in the direction of the wall my foot came in contact with something that lay there and i pitched forward and fell I anticipated a crash which would have put an end to my hopes of escape, but my fall was comparatively noiseless, for I fell upon the body of a man who lay bound up with ropes close against the wall. A moment I stayed as I fell, the chest of my fellow captive rising and falling beneath me as he breathed. Knowing that my life depended upon retaining a firm hold upon myself, I succeeded in overcoming the dizziness and nausea which threatened to drown my senses, and moving back so that I knelt upon the floor, I fumbled in my pocket for the electric lamp which I had placed there. My raincoat had been removed whilst I was unconscious, and with it my pistol, but the lamp was untouched. I took it out, pressed the button, and directed the ray upon the face of the man beside me. It was Nayland Smith! Trussed up and fashioned to a ring in the wall, he lay, having a cork gag strapped so tightly between his teeth that I wondered how he had escaped suffocation. But although a greyish pallor showed through the tan of his skin, his eyes were feverishly bright, and there, as I knelt beside him, I thanked heaven silently but fervently. Then, in furious haste, I set to work to remove the gag. It was most ingeniously secured by means of leather straps buckled at the back of his head, but I unfastened these without much difficulty, and he spat out the gag, uttering an exclamation of disgust. "'Thank God, old man,' he said huskily, "'thank God that you were alive. I saw them drag you in, and I thought—' "'I have been thinking the same about you for more than twenty-four hours,' I said reproachfully. "'Why did you start without—' "'I did not want you to come, Petrie,' he replied. "'I had a sort of premonition. "'You see, it was realized, and instead of being as helpless as I, "'fate has made you the instrument of my release. "'Quick, you have a knife? Good.' "'The old feverish energy was by no means extinguished in him. "'Cut the ropes about my wrist and ankles, but don't otherwise disturb them.' "'I set to work eagerly. "'Now,' Smith continued, "'put that filthy gag in place again, but you need not strap it so tightly.' directly that they find you are alive they will treat you the same you understand she has been here three times karamina shh 
I heard a sound like the opening of a distant door. Quick, the straps of the gag, whispered Smith, and pretend to recover consciousness just as they enter. Clumsily I followed his directions, for my fingers were none too steady, replaced the lamp in my pocket, and threw myself upon the floor. Through half-shut eyes I saw the door open, and obtained a glimpse of a desolate empty passage beyond. On the threshold stood Karamina. She held in her hand a common tin oil-lamp, which smoked and flickered with every movement, filling the already none too clean the air with an odour of burning paraffin. She personified the outre, nothing so incongruous as her presence in that place could well be imagined. She was dressed as I remembered once to have seen her two years before, in the gauzy silks of the harem. There were pearls glittering like great tears amid the cloud of her wonderful hair. She wore broad gold bangles upon her bare arms, and her fingers were laden with jewellery. A heavy girdle swung from her hips, defining the lines of her slim shape, and about one white ankle there was a gold band. As she appeared in the doorway, I almost entirely closed my eyes, but my gaze rested fascinatedly upon the little red slippers which she wore. Again I detected the exquisite, elusive perfume, which, like a breath of musk, spoke of the Orient, and, as always, it played havoc with my reason, seeming to intoxicate me as though it were the very essence of her loveliness. But I had a part to play, and throwing out one clenched hand so that my fist struck upon the floor, I uttered a loud groan, and made as if to rise upon my knees. One quick glimpse I had of her wonderful eyes, widely opened, and turned upon me with such an enigmatical expression as set my heart leaping wildly. Then, stepping back, Karamina placed the lamp upon the boards of the passage and clapped her hands. As I sank upon the floor in assumed exhaustion, a Chinaman with a perfectly impassive face, and a Burman whose pock-marked evil countenance was set in an apparently habitual leer, came running into the room past the girl. With a hand which trembled violently, she held the lamp whilst the two yellow ruffians tied me. I groaned and struggled feebly, fixing my gaze upon the lamp-bearer in a silent reproach which was by no means without its effect. She lowered her eyes, and I could see her biting her lip whilst the colour gradually faded from her cheeks. Then glancing up again quickly, and still meeting that reproachful stare, she turned her head aside altogether, and rested one hand upon the wall, swaying slightly as she did so. It was a singular ordeal for more than one of that incongruous group, but in order that I may not be charged with hypocrisy, or with seeking to hide my own folly, I confess here that when again I found myself in darkness, my heart was leaping not because of the success of my strategy, but because of the success of that reproachful glance which I had directed towards the lovely, dark-eyed Karamina, toward the faithless, evil Karamina, so much for myself. The door had not been closed ten seconds, ere Smith again was spitting out the gag, swearing under his breath and stretching his cramped limbs free from their binding. Within a minute of the time from my trussing I was a free man again, save that look where I would, to right, to left, or inward, to my own conscience. Two dark eyes met mine, enigmatically. "'What now?' I whispered. "'Let me think,' replied Smith. "'A false move would destroy us. "'How long have you been here?' since last night. Is Fu Manchu? Fu Manchu is here, replied Smith grimly, and not only Fu Manchu, but another. Another? A higher than Fu Manchu, apparently. 
I have an idea of the identity of this person, but no more than an idea. Something unusual is going on, Petrie. Otherwise I should have been a dead man twenty-four hours ago. Something even more important than my death engages Fu Manchu's attention, and this can only be the presence of the mysterious visitor. Your seductive friend, Karamia, is arrayed in her very becoming national costume in his honour, I presume. He stopped abruptly, then added, I would give five hundred pounds for a glimpse of that visitor's face. Is Burke... God knows what's become of Burke, Petrie. We were both caught napping in the establishment of the amiable Shen Yan, where amid a very mixed company of poker players we were losing our money like gentlemen. But Weymouth, Burke and I had both been neatly sandbagged, my dear Petrie, and removed elsewhere some hours before Weymouth raided the gaming-house. Oh, I don't know how they smuggled us away with the police watching the place, but my presence here is sufficient evidence of the fact. Are you armed? No, my pistol was in my raincoat, which is missing. In the dim light from the broken window I could see Smith tugging reflectively at the lobe of his left ear. I am without arms too, he mused. We might escape from the window. It's a long drop. Ah, I imagine so. If only I had a pistol or a revolver. What should you do? I should present myself before the important meeting which, I am assured, is being held somewhere in this building, and to-night would see the end of my struggle with the Fu Manchu group, the end of the whole yellow menace. For not only is Fu Manchu here, Petrie, with all his gang of assassins, but he whom I believe to be the real head of the group, a certain Mandarin, is here also. End of chapter 12 Recording by Elaine Tweddle Stirling, Ontario.